Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me today from my office on the 29th floor here in central Hong Kong as we study the Come Follow Me curriculum for November 11th through 17th. And today we'll be studying the last uh, seven chapters, the second half of the book of Hebrews. If you recall last week, we studied the, the first six chapters, the first half of the book of Hebrews, as it talked about Christ and his role and his, his mission uh, and how that mission was uh, foretold and, and, and taught uh, deeply in the Old Testament. So for today's lesson, again, we'll be studying the second half of the book of Hebrews. And, and here, the author of Hebrews, and if you recall, we're, we're really not sure uh, who the author is. There's a lot of uh, controversy uh, within academics as to who is the author of Hebrews. I think most of them will generally agree that uh, Paul probably did not write this himself. But last week we talked about how, uh, from our point of view, it's really not that important who actually put uh, pen to the paper when drafting this, uh, this lecture. It's really more of a lecture, I think, than it is uh, a letter. It's not clear that this was actually penned as an epistle, as the, as the earlier uh, Pauline epistles were. Um, again, it's more of a, of a lecture prepared by a, someone who is very familiar with the Old Testament. Certainly could have been Paul, uh, but, but the writing style and some of the word usage is, is, is different than, uh, than that in the earlier, uh, than the epistles that were more certain came from Paul's pen. Um, so because of that, there's some controversy. But again, who, no matter who the author is, uh, it is clear that whoever, whoever wrote this beautiful book of Scripture um, had a deep uh, understanding of the Old Testament and a deep love for the Savior and a testimony of his uh, role as our Savior um, and his position in the plan of salvation. Uh, and so they shared that with us here in the book of Hebrews. We talked about how this book is designed, it's, it's written for uh, largely for an audience of Jewish converts, uh, those who were originally Jewish and had later converted to Christianity. It's written for them uh, to, to strengthen their faith in Jesus Christ, letting them know that, yeah, you guys are, are getting a little persecution now. Uh, we totally understand that. But don't worry, your, your faith in Christ is founded on good ground, on solid ground, even by those who uh, are persecuting you now. Uh, by the uh, by, those who by the Jews who subscribe to the Old Testament, uh, because there's lots of prophecies about Christ, and his role is easily understood uh, as one understands properly the Old Testament. So again, regardless of who the author is, uh, and I'm perfectly happy to assume it's it's Paul, but but we're there's just we just have to realize that there's some uncertainty uh, with regards to that statement. But regardless of who the author is. Uh, it is someone that clearly uh, was devoted to the Savior 
and and because of that, we're you know I'm personally very very grateful that this book has been this 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 lecture has been preserved for two thousand years, and we have it uh, in its fullness today, uh, so that we can study and so that we can draw closer and in strength and strengthen our testimony of Jesus Christ from its writing. Re- again, regardless of who the author it is is. Uh, I feel the Spirit as I read it. It strengthens me. It teaches me about Christ. It draws me closer to Christ. And so because of that, as far as I'm concerned, regardless of the authorship, this is a book of Scripture, one worth our study, uh, one worth uh, deeply thinking about in order to strengthen our relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, so let's let's jump into uh, chapter 7. Um, and in chapter 7, Paul or whoever the author is, starts teaching a lot about priesthood and tying the importance of priesthood to Jesus Christ and his role as the, as the author of our salvation, as, as he who possessed the priesthood, possessed the power to lead and guide us to salvation. Now, as Latter-day Saints, we tend to think of priesthood uh, in the context that we use it today, uh, often a definition that's given is the the authority of God delegated to man or the perfect plan of service. And those are all uh, adequate description of the priesthood as we think of them today um, as, as an authority that we use to enter into ordinances and to uh, that, drink, that bring us closer to God, as well as the authority through which God uh, directs and leads his church here upon the earth. But the, the priesthood that uh, that in the book of Hebrews we're talking about, it's 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 a little more than just uh, it's more than, it's it's a little different than we think of it today. Um, I, I think one way to think of it is it's it's a it's a power through which we approach God, either by ourselves or with the aid of a priest. Um, and I think with that understanding, I, I think it's also beautiful to think of our current understanding of the priesthood in that context. The priesthood is a power through which we are able to approach God, to come unto God. Um, certainly as we partake of the sacrament each week, we are uh, approaching God as we take the symbols of his death, the symbols of his body and of his blood, and as we internalize those by partaking of the sacrament that has been blessed with priesthood power. That is certainly helping us to to approach God as we do so. And then certainly in the temple, uh, where both men and women use the priesthood to to, to undertake the endowment process, uh, the the priesthood that is exercised within there and, and, and the function of the priesthood within the temple is to bring us closer to God, allow us to approach God. And with each step in the endowment process, we get closer and closer to God until finally we are permitted to enter into his presence. And that process, in each case, the covenants that we enter into within the temple endowment process are officiated by the power of the holy priesthood. And, and beautifully, more in the temple really than anywhere, we see that it's both men and women exercising together uh, that sacred power as men and women each uh, progress towards the presence of God. And it's this notion of a power that helps us draw closer to God 
that, uh, from my understanding, is what uh, the author of the Hebrews is talking about. It's this power that helps us draw closer to God. And because of that, uh, there's, we have these two different levels. And in and, and Hebrews, uh, they, they emphasize this as they talk about the superiority of Jesus Christ and his role as the great high priest. We touched about that briefly last week, but here in chapter 7, Hebrews really emphasizes this idea that Christ is the great high priest. Uh, and, and, he, and, and Paul emphasizes that it's after the order of Melchizedek. And why was Melchizedek so important to the Jews or so persuasive? If you recall, Jewish history essentially starts, their history as a covenant people begins with Abraham. Uh, the Lord entered into a covenant with Abraham, and the Jews believe that they are the literal descendants of Abraham, and therefore the heirs to that covenant. Well, in the Hebrews, they're reminded that when Abraham was alive, he did not, eventually he came to, but he, his approach to God was facilitated through Melchizedek evidenced by the fact that he paid tithes to Melchizedek. So even as great as Abraham was, his approaching God was his offerings to God in the form of the tithes that he paid was facilitated through Melchizedek. So Melchizedek received his offerings representing the Lord as he did so. And then Melchizedek received his offerings, received his sacrifice uh, on behalf of God, and then used that uh, in the name of God, which I think provides an interesting light on our payment of tithes and the sacrifices that we make as well. Now, certainly as the gospel has fulfilled the law of Moses, we no longer make sacrifices in a similar way, but we still do pay tithing in the same way uh, that that Abraham paid to Melchizedek. And do we think of the tithing that we paid in a similar fashion to the way that the Jews thought of the sacrifices, the animal sacrifices that they made, that they would purchase and that they would give up uh, to the priest as they offered their sacrifice, the priest uh, representing God, as they handed their sacrifice to the priest, uh, who then... Uh, took that sacrifice on behalf of God with his authority, um, again, representing the sacrifice that we each make to God and that they made to God at the time. Do we think of our tithing in that context as a sacrifice that we are giving to God? And then the member of the bishopric um, who receives that that individual represents God as we make our contribution. We make our sacrifice to God uh, through that contribution, showing our devotion to him, showing our humility to him, showing our willingness uh, to do what he wants us to do. Now, it's interesting that in this day and age of uh, technology, you know, I, I certainly, uh, as I make my tithing payments, you know, it's, it's very simple. I simply instruct my, my bank to send a check to Salt Lake uh, which it does so uh, not quite automatically, but everything is done online. I no longer hand my check uh, or, or my cash as I did when I was young. 
to a member of the bishopric. So the processes have somewhat changed, and in some ways we've lost a little bit of that symbolism. Um, but that is what, uh, in some ways, tithing is about. It's this idea that we make a sacrifice in the same way that the Jews did as old, and then we hand it to the representative of God, uh, knowing that we have done what we can. We have contributed our part uh, to showing our devotion to God. Now, again, the, the importance of Melchizedek was that you had Abraham, this great father of Judaism, he who had entered into the covenants with God, the, these covenants that the Jews have relied upon for thousands of years, even that Abraham, he paid tithing to Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek, uh, because Abraham recognized Melchizedek and recognized his power and his position as the priest representing God to Abraham, uh, clearly uh, Melchizedek was a great high priest. Um, and it was, and it also illustrates the idea that if Melchizedek had this authority to receive sacrifices from Abraham, then clearly there was authority that existed long before the law of Moses came into play, long before uh, the Levites were given uh, the law of Moses, or rather given the uh, Aaronic uh, priesthood uh, as part of the law of Moses, as the power to officiate the ordinances of the law of Moses. Clearly, there was this priesthood power in existence uh, before the Aaronic priesthood came in, and that priesthood is named after uh, Melchizedek are recognized. Melchizedek is recognized uh, as the no doubt, no controversy, uh, because he, because Abraham paid tithes to him, made his sacrifice to them. Melchizedek is recognized as uh, the namesake, as as the holder, uh, as an uncontroverted uh, holder of that priesthood. Now, with that understanding, uh, the Hebrews gets into this argument, starting in chapter seven. Verses 11 and 12. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. So the logic here is uh, if the Aaronic priesthood was sufficient to bring us to God, we wouldn't have need of this greater priesthood. But this greater priesthood clearly exists because the Aaronic priesthood was insufficient. The law of Moses is insufficient to take us all the way to God. And so, just in the same way that the law of Moses was supplanted by the gospel of Jesus Christ, so too is the priesthood that operates or, or that officiates the ordinances of the law of Moses, so too must that priesthood be supplanted by a higher priesthood. And that priesthood is the Melchizedek priesthood. Um, and how wonderful it is that in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we both recognize and have restored to us the authority of both of those priesthoods. Um, so, and it, the author here is also clearly testifying that the law of Moses was not sufficient uh, to provide the salvation that they were seeking for. Um, and it's in some ways almost a chicken or egg problem. You know, does Christ prove that it wasn't sufficient or because it wasn't sufficient, 
uh, you need Jesus Christ. Um, but regardless, again, he's talking to the Christian converts here and letting them know that the foundation of their belief in Jesus Christ is sound doctrine according to the scriptures because clearly the law of Moses, if you believe in Christ, is not sufficient to bring us all the way to God. The law of Moses was not sufficient to bring the Jews into the presence of God. And if you remember going back to the book of Exodus in chapter 20, um, when they received the Ten Commandments, right after Moses received the Ten Commandments, he came down from the mountain and he said to them, guys, God is up on the mountain. Let's go there. Let's enter into his presence. Let's return to God and be with him, which is symbolic of the entire purpose of the gospel, right? Preparing us to enter into the presence of God. And what was their response to Moses? They said, no, Moses, that's not for us. That's prophet stuff. You go ahead and you enter into the presence of God. We, we're going to stay down here. We're more comfortable at our level. Uh, we don't want to go there. And so, and so because of that, the Lord gave them the law of Moses because they were not willing to enter into his presence. So clearly the law of Moses was not a priesthood, uh, was not a, a process of ordinances and a law designed to lead the people to the presence of God because they weren't ready for that. It was preparatory to bring them to a place where they would be ready and they would be willing to enter into the presence of God. But the law of Moses was not given to bring them into the presence of God. It was, it was prepared to bring them into a position where they would be ready to then take that next step. And that next step only comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verses 14 through 16. For it is evident that our Lord, our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. So here the argument is Christ was not a Levite. He was part of the tribe of Judah. So he clearly could not have had the Aaronic priesthood. So what priesthood did he have? Well, if there's only two to choose from and he didn't have the Aaronic priesthood, then he clearly was after the order of Melchizedek. After the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest, as it says in verse 15. And we read in Alma about how, uh, Alma chapter 13, about how uh, Melchizedek was referred to as the king of Salem, or the prince of peace, because he took the city of Salem that he was king over, who was an unrighteous people, and he taught them repentance, and he led them to repentance, and he led them and prepared them for the presence of God, to enter into the rest of God. And because he was able to do so, he led his people to the rest of God, into the rest of God, which we talked about last week, was this idea that we're no longer looking for uh, further uh, evidence and further proof we are certain and we are comfortable and we are at peace 
with our decision and at peace with our relationship with God, having repented and having uh, essentially been brought into his presence. We are able to be at peace with our relationship with God. Uh, that is the rest of the Lord. And so in the same way that Melchizedek was able to bring his people and he became the prince of peace, uh, so too is Christ able to lead his people into that same peace, into the presence of God. And he's not after the law of carnal commandments, these commandments that are here upon the earth, serving us for a temporary period, but rather he is after the power of an endless life. Uh, we often hear one of the distinctions between the Aaronic priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood is that the Aaronic priesthood is, uh, provides the temporary ordinances. We have the sacrament. We have, uh, used to be home and visiting, uh, home teaching was done through the Aaronic priesthood. Uh, the collection of uh, fast offerings is facilitated through the Aaronic priesthood. And the uh, ordinance of baptism, this initial ordinance that enters us, that, that puts us on the path. It is the gate through which we begin entering into the path. These are all temporal uh, processes, temporal ordinances put here on this earth to prepare us and to put us on the right path to, to get us ready to accept the eternal ordinances. And now those eternal ordinances are found in the temple. And it is only in the temple uh, that, every, that things are officiated uh, by the Melchizedek priesthood. Um, and so we now uh, <clears throat> have this distinction between uh, the law of Moses and the carnal commandments officiated by the Levites and the power of endless life, these eternal ordinances that have eternal efficacy that are necessary for our progression and for our salvation. And those are officiated by Jesus Christ, uh, being after the order of Melchizedek. Um, verses uh, 22, we're still in chapter 7, 22 through 25. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament, and they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continued, continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So because Christ is eternal, because he had power over death, the ordinances that he provides and the priesthood that he blesses us with is not Again, a temporary priesthood, but rather an eternal priesthood. And its ordinances and its effect have are eternal. And they're designed to bring us not onto the path, but they, they're designed to bring us down the path towards eternal life. That is the purpose of the Melchizedek priesthood and the role of Jesus Christ. And he's able to fulfill that role because he had power over death because he himself is eternal and therefore his priesthood and the blessings that come from his priesthood are also eternal. Verses 26 through 28, for such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, 
separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son, who is consecrated forevermore. So again, we have this distinction here between the high priests that officiated under the law of Moses, this temporal law, and these high priests were mortal, uh, they were not perfect, and they would eventually die. And then we compare that to Jesus Christ being the high priest under the higher order, under the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews, again, is to convince all who will hear, especially uh, Jews who have recently converted to Christianity, and certainly those who were considering that conversion, but to convince them that Jesus Christ is a better way. The gospel of Jesus Christ is superior to the law of Moses. So it's not something, if you're a Jew by culture and you grew up a Jew, it's not something that you need to be ashamed of because you have found a better way. Jesus Christ is a better high priest. The gospel of Jesus Christ is better than the law of Moses. The covenants and the blessings that we receive under, through Jesus Christ and under his gospel are better than that which we can receive by the law of Moses. And now I want to take a minute to to um, use uh, an analogy, I think, that helps me think of the status of religion in the world uh, in general as well. I, I think we as Latter-day Saints, and, and rightfully so, are grateful for our membership in the church. And we testify that it is the true and living church of Jesus Christ upon this earth. Now, what does that mean, and how should we think of other religions or other churches that are out there? Um, because there is clearly, as put forward in the book of Hebrews, a, a hierarchy of uh, religious beliefs. Paul, or the author of the Hebrews, whoever it is, is clearly stating that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a better way. It is superior. Now, he's not saying that the law of Moses is, is bad. He's not saying uh, those who follow it are bad. But he is clearly stating that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a better way. And I think we can think of this in terms of the gospel of Jesus Christ being a celestial law, the law of Moses being a terrestrial law, and then those without any of the law uh, living under a telestial law. So certainly the law of Moses is superior to not having the law of Moses. But at the same time, the gospel of Jesus Christ is superior to the law of Moses. And so we have this hierarchy divided into three uh, that helps us uh, conceptualize the relationship between these various forms of belief. And, and that's also how I uh, perceive other religions, uh, whether they be different Christian sects, or whether it be Judaism, uh, Islam, Buddhism, I like to think of it in that same uh, context, that same hierarchical of threes, if you will. Now, that is to say, I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is 
as it has been restored, as it's restored through the gospel, uh, through the prophet Joseph Smith, and exercised and taught today in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that gospel is the celestial law. And what I mean by that is that has everything that we need to lead us back to the presence of God. It has everything that is sufficient in order to not only put us on the path, but actually bring us back to the presence of God. And for those of you that have received your endowment, you'll know that the culmination of that process happens in the Holy Temple. It is in the Holy Temple where we, enter, where we receive all of the covenants, that we receive all of the ordinances of the priesthood that are necessary to prepare us to return to God's presence. And that is why we have the restored gospel, to prepare us to return to God's presence. That's what it's all about, getting us back into the presence of God. And as long as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints continues to teach that and continues to make the prep, give people the preparations necessary through the ordinances officiated by priesthood, through the teaching of covenants and correct principles and doctrines, then it will be sufficient, it will continue to be sufficient to lead us back to the presence of God. And that's the promise that we have from God, that that ability of the church to continue to lead us and prepare us to return to God's presence will never again be taken from us, but it will always be here. And the, the keys of that process will always rest with the president of this church. That is the promise. Now, other churches, other religions, it's my belief, are wonderful in that they bring us closer to God, and certainly with Christian religions, bring us closer to Jesus Christ. So it's not a question of good versus bad. You can think, I, I like to think of other religions as being a telestial, or, uh, excuse me, not telestial, terrestrial, and uh, that it leads men closer to God and leads them the same way that the law of Moses did, guides them to the path. But the path back to God requires the priesthood. It requires the ordinances and it requires this, the holy temple. Those three things are necessary in order for us to actually return and fully prepare ourselves to return to the presence of God. So other religions are perfectly capable of leading us towards God, bringing us closer to God, helping us feel closer to him, helping us lead a better and a more fulfilling and a more wonderful life. And to the extent they do that, it is absolutely wonderful, and I would encourage anyone to continue in their current religious beliefs, whatever they might be, to, and that they would bring people closer to God and bring them towards the path. But at the same time, realizing, which is my belief, that that path bringing us back to the presence of God is only found in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because only in here do we have the restored authority, do we have the restored ordinances, and do we have the restored holy temple, which brings us not just to the path, 
but actually back to the presence of God. And that is what Jesus Christ came for. That is what Moses was talking about when he came down from the mountain, having received the commandments and said, guys, let's go to the presence. Let's return to God. Let's go and be there with him. And they said, no, that's prophet stuff. That's for you, Moses. We don't want that. We're not willing to give up what we have here. We're too closely tied to the temporal things of this earth that we are not willing to give those up to go back to the presence of God. So it becomes us as Latter-day Saints, our obligation, knowing and believing that we have the authority and the priesthood necessary to guide us back to the presence of God. Our obligation is to not hold so tightly to the things of the world that we lose sight of what our ultimate goal is and we lose sight of the privileges that are ours. Now, we're grateful to a merciful and a loving God that allows us to always repent and always improve ourselves. And certainly he allows that to everyone on earth, regardless of their religion, regardless of what they believe. He gives them the chance to make that journey all the way back to his presence. But that journey will always flow through authority, through ordinances, and through the holy temple. Um, So that's kind of a long description of uh, what I think uh, a lot is what's going on in chapter 7 and really the book of Hebrews as, as, as the author uses um, beautiful language and powerful teachings drawing from the Old Testament to teach the people that what you had under the law of Moses was good, but it wasn't sufficient to bring you back to his presence. That's not what it was designed to do. And here you have something better. And you have the chance to embrace it. And we as members of the church, as we go out and we share our testimonies and we uh, try to engage in missionary work, it's my belief that that's what our message should be. Not that what you previously believed was wrong, but that you have the chance to receive something better. That there's more out there. Take the good that you have, take the truths that you've learned, and let's add to those the restored truths that we have within the church so that we can bring you not just to the path, but all the way back to the presence of the Father. That's what our message should be, and that's what the message that we should internalize as members of the church. And it's one that should change you, one that should make you better, one that should impact every aspect of your life. This knowledge that we can return to God's presence, that we can prepare ourselves, and that we can go to the Holy Temple and receive the ordinances and enter into the covenants necessary to return to the presence of God. Uh, Chapter 8, we'll go through these uh, a bit more quickly. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not a man. So again, it's drawing on this idea that through Jesus Christ, we have something better. We have the true tabernacle, or temple, if you will, created by the Lord, not just by men, but something that the Lord has put hand, 
has, has put down and established. Because our high priest, Jesus Christ, is one who sits on the throne of God. We have God as our high priest. And this high priest will always be better than any alternative high priest. Verse 6, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also is he the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. I think that just reiterates what we've been talking about. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the better way. It's a more excellent ministry because we have a better mediator in Jesus Christ, a better covenant, and leads to better promises. Leads to returning to the presence of God, entering into his rest, and enjoying the blessings of eternal life. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Now this is actually quoting uh, Jeremiah 31:33, but this was the ultimate desire of the children of Israel that God would be their God and he would be their people. And the way that that is fulfilled is by the Lord taking his laws and not just writing them upon tablets that they could see or even upon scriptures that they could read, but taking the law, taking the covenants, and putting it into their mind and, more importantly, into their heart, writing it upon the fleshy tablets of the heart, as we read earlier uh, in the year, that that is where the law should be written, upon our hearts. And the result is it will change us, as we just talked about. It will make us better people. It will have that impact of, of changing everything about us. But through those changes, and only through those changes, will we be prepared to return to and enter into the presence of God. Chapter 9, uh, and here the author of Hebrews gets into uh, talking about some of the details of the tabernacle, or, or the temple actually. Uh, the tabernacle was a, a temporary temple that was used by the Jews, but more importantly the temple uh, that uh, the Jews built in order to uh, prepare them uh, to enter into this path and, and, and enter into the presence of the Lord. And each element of the taberna, of the temple was designed to teach about Jesus Christ and the plan of salvation. And so that's what Paul, is, uh, the author of the Hebrews, uh, is doing in this, in this chapter 9. He goes through the different elements uh, found within the tabernacle, uh, within the, the Jewish temple, and lets them know that each of these was symbolic of Jesus Christ. Um, and to help better understand that, uh, I have another book uh, that I, I highly recommend. It's by James Farrell. It's called uh, The Hidden Christ. Hopefully you can see that clearly. Uh, and it's um, excellent uh, discussion of the symbolism behind the Old Testament. Last year as we were studying Old Testament in Sunday school, uh, I was one of the gospel doctrine teachers, and I used a lot of the principles uh, within here to teach my class, uh, and it was truly powerful principles. I uh, highly recommend this book, but it was, it, it was great to see the reaction of people as they had uh, one aha moment after another, as, uh, and, they, and they all thought I was the greatest teacher ever, I think. Oh, no, they, they didn't all think that, certainly, but uh, 
Um, but certainly it made my life a lot easier as I was able to simply teach a lot of the principles that were found in this book. Um, and, and so I certainly can't take credit for them, but it uh, goes to, to Brother Farrell. So highly recommend his book. Um, a part of that book, uh, as I'm putting on the screen now, is a uh, description of the tabernacle. And you can see uh, the layout of the temple or the tabernacle as the Israelites had it. Um, from the outer courtyard, uh, starting from the bottom here. And then you go up and you see, uh, number two, the altar of sacrifice. Uh, three, the brazen sea. Um, and then you go from the outer courtyard and you enter into, you go through a veil and enter into uh, number four, the holy place, where you find number five, a candlestick or a lampstand uh, with seven branches, the menorah, as we re re uh, refer to it as. Uh, there's also table uh, number six, the table of shoe bread, and then seven, you have an altar of incense. And then behind that altar uh, is another veil, which leads to uh, number, number eight, the other veil, which leads to number nine, being the Holy of Holies, where you will find number 10, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and so that is the, the layout of the, the Jewish temple. And you can see that this was a, a progression. Again, we're talking about entering into the presence of God. And think of this in the context of our own Latter-day Saint temples and the endowment process. But you can see as, you, as we think of the, the outer courtyard as the uh, telestial world, and then uh, the holy place being the, the terrestrial world, and then finally number nine, the holy of holies being the presence of God, being the celestial kingdom. And the progression as people walk from the outer courtyard into the holy place and then eventually uh, being permitted to enter into the holy of holies. Now, under the law of Moses, people were not permitted to enter into the holy of holies, but only the high priest was. And that was only one day out of the year on the day of atonement was the high priest permitted to pierce the veil and to enter into the Holy of Holies. Now, the purpose of chapter 9 in the book of Hebrews is to help us better understand, or to, to help the reader better understand how the structure of the Jewish temple teaches us about the mission of Jesus Christ and his role as our Savior and Redeemer. For this, we look at another chart that is also found um, in uh, Brother Farrell's book, The Hidden Christ, that talks of, that illustrates how Christ is symbolic of the temple of God. You can see, looking at number one, uh, he made himself manifest to the world. And recall, number one is the outer courtyard, which is symbolic of the celestial kingdom. Uh, number two, as we go past the altar of sacrifice, Christ sacrificed his will to do the will of the Father. Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. Number three, as we go past the brazen sea, uh, it represents a, a baptismal font, and Christ himself was baptized. Number four, as we continue into the holy place, Christ is the way and the truth that leads us uh, to the higher level. Number five, as we go past the candlestick or the menorah, uh, Christ himself is the light of the world. Uh, number six, the, the table of shoe bread is symbolic of the sacrament 
that we partake, is that, that recognizes that Christ offered his body and his blood on our behalf. And then number seven, uh, as we get to the altar of incense, uh, that, that represents how Christ stood and stands before the Father pleading on our behalf. And if you recall when we had our discussion of the book of Philemon, how that was a beautiful uh, analogy to teach how Christ uh, stands in and pleads our case before the Father. And then you have number eight uh, being the veil. Uh, He entered into the holiest of holy by a new and living way. Uh, He is the way and the life. And if you recall, when the, the very moment that his spirit left his body, Uh, As he died on the cross, the veil to the Holy of Holies uh, was ripped in two. And then number nine, uh, the Holy of Holies, Christ is the life. Entering into the presence of God is entering into his presence in the celestial kingdom where Christ is. And then number ten, representing the Ark of the Covenant, Christ rules and reigns in the presence of the Father forever. So uh, these, these two charts, I think, beautifully help to uh, further illustrate, and, and we don't have the rich uh, context uh, or, or the background, I think, uh, as Latter-day Saints being 2,000 years uh, removed from when this was, uh, when Hebrews was originally written. We don't have a lot of the context that goes behind chapter 9. So I think these two charts help us better illustrate what the book of Hebrews is talking about as it compares Christ and it compares the gospel and it compares uh, Christ and his sacrifice and his authority and his ability to lead and guide us back to the presence of God, comparing that to the Jewish tabernacle or temple. Um, I think that those, hopefully those, uh, th- those graphics help us to better understand uh, how these two things uh, work together and, and really what Hebrews is talking about. Um, So two verses, I think, in chapter 9 to help further drive home this point. uh, Verse 12, chapter 9, where it reads, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And then add to that verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So everything within the ancient Jewish temple and also within our temples is simply a template, if you will. Uh, Those two words are very, very closely related. The temple is a template for the plan of salvation, for the redemptive process in which Christ takes us from this world and leads and guides us and directs us and makes it possible for us to return eventually back to the presence of the Father. That is the plan of salvation. That is the path that we are all walking on right now, going from this life where we are separated from God's presence and we are separated for a purpose. It is so that we can learn and grow But the goal is eventually to return back to the presence of God. And that process is illustrated or we're given a template for that process in the ancient Jewish temples and in our temples today to lead us and guide us there. And Christ 
fulfills that process. It is no longer a template, but it becomes the reality when Jesus Christ becomes our high priest. It's no longer a symbolic looking forward to something that will eventually come. Christ takes that promise, takes that hope, and makes it real. He brings it into reality because of his authority and because of his position as God, having come down, having atoned for our sins, and having the authority and the ability to lead and guide us back to the Father. Chapter 10, uh, let's read verses 21 through 24. And really the theme of chapter 10 now, we've gone from kind of a hardcore discussion of Christ is the fulfillment of the law of Moses and his gospel is a superior and a better way. Now to a discussion and and an attempt to persuade uh, the reader that if you believe this, now you take action. Now you show and you exercise your faith. Uh, So chapter 10 verses 21 through 24. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to, and to good works. All right, so these verses are kind of furthering this idea that, okay, if we believe these things, if you've accepted Christ as your high priest, now let's move forward on them. Let's act upon them. Let's have, uh, have our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's cleanse ourselves. Let's purify ourselves. Let's take these promises of Christ and put them in our hearts that they will change us, that they will wash us, that they will cleanse us and prepare us to enter into the presence of God. In fact, the... This idea of our heart sprinkled from an evil conscience uh, draws back to the idea that <clears throat> before the high priest uh, every year entered the Holy of Holies, he would, uh, he would wash his hands. He would, with the sprinkling of water, preparing himself to enter into the presence of God. We should do the same, except we no longer wash our hands. We wash our hearts. We wash our conscience in preparation uh, for our entering into the presence of God. Uh, 35 and 36. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. So here, uh, these two verses are kind of a little bit of a reality check. uh, That just because you've entered into the path, just because you've accepted Christ as your high priest, and just because you, you know that you need to do better and, and accept the fullness of the gospel. Don't expect everything to go easy, but this, this process requires patience and it requires faith uh, in order, before we receive the promise. These promises do not come right away, but rather this is a process that we are all going through. This is a process through which our very innards are changed, where we change from being <clears throat> men and women of this, the, the celestial world that we now inhabit to preparing ourselves through this change to 
enter into and return to the presence of God. And so, because of that, faith becomes a critical component of this process. We have to have the faith that Christ is able to make this change within us and that this process, which takes time, will actually work and is actually working. And so in chapter 11, uh, we have this beautiful lecture on faith, starting in verse 1, where uh, it defines faith. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, the, uh, the Joseph Smith translation um, takes this idea of the substance of things hoped for. If we look down, it says uh, it's the assurance of things hoped for. It's that, that confidence that knowledge that the things that we hope for will be brought to pass, that they will actually come to fruition. And then this evidence of things not seen, if you recalled earlier, we talked about how uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 4, verse 18, it, 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 it says that the things that are not seen are eternal. If you recall, uh, Paul in that letter uh, drew a distinction between the things of the world, which are seen, and the things of eternity, which are not seen. So faith, in that it talks about things that are not seen, deals with, at least the faith that we're talking about, deals with the, uh, the things of eternity, the things that are not seen, the things that are still to come. And so because of that, it requires patience. It requires uh, trusting this process that it is actually having the effect uh, that we expect it to, that we hope it will, that it is changing us, that it is making us a better person. And so because of that, patience really becomes a critical component uh, of our faith. I think one that's often um, underemphasized, the importance of having patience, that, you know, how often do we get frustrated that we think we're not improving that we're not getting better, when in reality we are. If we could compare ourselves with the us of uh, a year ago or certainly five or ten years ago, we would see a remarkable difference. But on a day-to-day basis, it's hard to see it's hard to see those changes. I think it's like um, my my youngest daughter, uh, Elizabeth, she she turned six this week. Uh, And right before we went to bed, she said, uh, we have this chart that measures our height. And she said, Daddy, can you, can you make a mark to see how tall I am tonight? On this night be my last day of being five. And I was like, oh, that's, that's a great idea. So we went ahead and we did that. She wakes up the next morning. First thing she says to me is, Daddy, let's go see if I grew last night now that I'm six. Uh, she, she somehow got in her mind that just by turning, going to bed and turning from five to six, she would see significant growth. Um, but of course, there really was no change. She was the exact same height that she was before she went to bed. And she was a little discouraged by that. She's like, well, Daddy, aren't I growing? Aren't I getting bigger? I had to say, well, yes, honey, but you can't compare it on a night-by-night basis. You have to compare where your height, where you were a few months ago, where you were you know, last year when you turned five. And then you'll see that growth. And it certainly is the same way with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our faith is that this process, by believing in Jesus Christ, by accepting, by entering into the uh, covenants that we have and receiving the ordinances made possible through the Melchizedek priesthood, 
that we are growing, that we are improving, and that we are becoming ready to return to and enter into the presence of God. But that process takes faith. Because we don't see the immediate results, it takes faith. It takes that constant uh, plodding, if you will, plodding along in the gospel, which is a word uh, Elder Maxwell used to like to say. Um, That constant daily repetition, doing the things, reading scriptures, saying our prayers. Sometimes it feels like they're not having that effect. Going to church every week, doing our ministering, serving others. Sometimes it can seem like a chore, but we have to have the faith that this process is changing us. And when measured day to day, it's hard to notice, but over time, it becomes clear as to our growth and our improved spirituality and our drawing closer to God. Now, it also requires frequently taking our own temperatures, uh, making sure that we're on the right path and repenting when we're not. Uh, But as we do so, We have faith that Christ is able to change us and that he's able to improve us and make us better and prepare us to receive the blessing that we desire, to prepare us to return to enter the presence of God. Uh, Verse 6 is instructive. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So I think that emphasizes this idea that we've been talking about, that this process takes time and we have to have faith in the process. I think without faith, it is impossible to please him. And I like to liken this to, um, you know, imagine a a marriage in which every morning the husband said to his wife, uh, you know, honey, do you really love me? I need you to prove to me today that you really love me. Well, it would be clear that that man did not have faith in his wife's love. And if he made that wife, made his wife prove that he loved her every day, uh, that would certainly have a, a detrimental effect upon the marriage. And he, because eventually, within a marriage, you have to get to the point where you don't doubt the other spouse's faith uh, and, and don't doubt that their love for you. You have to have faith in their love. You can't see it, but if every day you keep keep poking it and asking, you know, do you love me? Are you sure you love me? Please prove that you love me. Well, that's going to have a detrimental effect. And that's really evidence that you don't, that you do not have that love because you do not have faith in that love. And our relationship with God is the same. If every day we're saying, God, prove to me that you're there. God, prove to me this is working. God, prove to me that my faith is not in vain. By our demanding proof every day, we're showing our lack of faith. We're showing our lack of belief and our lack of trust in God. Now, certainly someone that actually believes in God and that has faith in him isn't busy seeking for that evidence, but they're busy acting upon that faith. They're busy leading their lives in accordance with faith. And as they do that, then their faith deepens then their faith increases and their relate because their relationship with God is increasing. So just as a husband asking his wife to prove that she loves him every day would prevent that love from forming and from deepening, so too we need to get to the point with our relationship with God where we're no longer asking for evidence. 
We're no longer seeking for signs. We're no longer questioning everything that we hear. But instead, we're moving forward with faith. And when doubts arise, we, you know, we, we continue to move forward because we're certain in that relationship. And we know that through faith, we can work through those doubts. That's not to say that doubts are an evil thing and questions are a bad thing. We certainly have our questions. But as we are confronted with questions, the question for us is how will we respond? Will we respond faithfully? Will we give the Lord the benefit of the doubt? Are we operating from an assumption that God is there and that he loves us? Or do we selfishly maintain those doubts? Maintain, do we continue to question whether or not God is actually there? And then when doubts come up, we start to waver and we start to think, well, maybe I'm not so sure. And that impacts our ability to move forward. That impacts how we react in those situations. And then that essentially, just like the husband that requires his wife to prove, his, to prove her love every day, essentially has the, the effect of resetting that relationship back to zero. Instead of moving forward in faith, certain that God is there, certain that, love, that he loves us, and certain that he has power to save. So in Hebrews here, beautiful message about how faith is necessary as we daily go through the motions of being a disciple. We don't daily seek for signs. We don't frequently ask God to prove that he's there or to prove that this process is working. We have confidence in the process. We know that Christ loves us and we move forward with that confidence, with those assumptions on that base that he is there and that this process is working. And as we move forward, we will grow and we will improve and we will prepare ourselves to return to the presence of God. And again, those incremental, those small growths will not be evident on a day-to-day basis. But as we look back over time, we will see the improvements that we, will ma- that we have made and we will see our relationship with God deepening. And we will see uh, the improvements to ourselves and we will ultimately see the presence of God. So in this uh, chapter 11, it's a beautiful chapter. Um, he gives examples of, throughout the scriptures of different men and women who went forward exercising their faith, demonstrating their trust in God uh, by their actions. I think the simple one in verse 7 is Noah. You know, think of the faith that it took for Noah to build that ark because he built it before it started raining. He went, and that was not an easy process. It was a huge ark that he built because he knew that one day, because he had faith in God and God had warned him. So he didn't every day spend his time seeking for evidence that the rain was coming. He had faith in God, and so he was busy building his ark. And because he was focused on building the ark on acting upon his faith rather than seeking for signs that confirmed what God had told him. He was able to complete the ark and he was able to save his family. A simple example of faith, but I think a powerful one of how we shouldn't be daily seeking for signs, but we should be daily striving to act upon our faith, act upon the things that we believe. And it is through those actions that we draw closer to God and that we're able to save ourselves and those that we love. Chapter 12, uh, 
continues on about faith and how if we have the faith, if we have faith in God, if we have faith in Jesus Christ as the great high priest, we have to live it. Verses 1 through 3. Wherefore, seeing we also are, are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. So again, Christ, he didn't every day seek for confirmation that he was the Redeemer or that his Father was there leading and guiding his steps. Rather, he went forward and through that faith, he was able to endure the pains of the cross and become our Savior and Redeemer. We need to patiently follow his example. I love this. Let us run patience, run with patience the race that is set before us. Certainly patience isn't something that you think of uh, when you think of running a race. But it's critical that we pace ourselves. Patience and pacing ourselves, those are the same ideas. When you think of acting in patience, uh, think of pacing yourselves if you would with a race. You wouldn't start off a marathon by sprinting as fast as you could. You pace yourself. And it's that same patience that we need, the patience to pace ourselves throughout life knowing that growth is coming as we follow Jesus Christ. Verses 6 and 7. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? So as we run this race, we can expect problems. We can expect challenges. Sometimes those will be challenges that come by our own mistakes. But sometimes they will be challenges put there by a loving God who's giving us a chance to grow, giving us a chance to improve. And if every time we see one of those challenges, we, our first reaction is, oh, is this real? Is God really there? If God was there, how could this happen to me? Again, if, you, if that's your attitude, then you're like the husband who every day asks his wife if she really loves him. You're taking that relationship, all that growth that you've made in that relationship, and you're bringing it back to zero. You're bringing it back to, are you really there? Whereas if we know that God is there, when those challenges come, we will move forward with faith. Pray for God's guidance. And we will see that help come as we need it. And through that process of overcoming challenges with God at our side, we will grow and we will improve and we will prepare ourselves to become everything that we are supposed to become. 12 and 13. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way and let it rather be healed. So here we're talking about our own hands that hang down and our own feeble knees. Here the author of Hebrews is saying, you've got challenges, great. Tackle them. Go for them. Pick up your hands, straighten your path, and go forward. Move forward with faith. And, let, and when you make mistakes, when you get injured, be healed. Allow Trust in Christ that he is able to heal you. Uh, 
Brother and Sister Gibbons came out with a book not too long ago, uh, Terrell and Fiona Gibbons, called The Christ That Heals. And in there they talk about Christ as uh, being the great healer. Obviously, that's the, the title of the book. But how uh, as we sin, we are injured. And it is only Christ that heals us. It's not paying a debt. It's an injury that's inevitable. It's going to happen. And Christ heals us. He allows us to get better. And that's completely in line with what the, the book of Hebrews is talking about. Now let's end with uh, verses 27 and 29, through 29 here in chapter 12. And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So this process, there's going to be a sorting out. There's going to be a sifting and a refining element to us. We just have to accept that. And we have faith knowing that through that process, we are getting better. Through that process, Jesus Christ, our great high priest, is able to refine us. He's able to make us better. And he's able to prepare us to return to the presence of the Father because that is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. It's not about leading us to the path. It's not about preparing us to be brought on the path. It is the path. Christ is the way back to the Father. And so our job is to have faith in him. Our job is to walk that path faithfully, knowing that challenges will come, knowing that we're going to make mistakes, knowing that we're going to be injured and that healing will be necessary. But if we are patient on that path, if we are able to endure those challenges with faith in Christ, not asking if God is really there and not seeking for evidence or starting to question every time a challenge comes about and resetting that relationship back to square one, but rather as we move forward with faith in him, Christ is able to lead us, to guide us, to heal us, to improve us, and ultimately to prepare us to return to the presence of God. That's what the Hebrew, book of Hebrews so beautifully teaches, that Christ is the better way, and that Christ is the only way back to the presence of God. And it's my testimony that he is fully able to lead us there as long as we faithfully walk that path. And this I say in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.